If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that is just not sports. I am your host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. I am yet again on lockdown. Yet another week of waking my kids up by accident during nap time because I'm too loud on a work call (laughs) or whatever. And yet another week where I thank all the people who are on the front lines of this, keeping people healthy, keeping food on shelves, keeping the essential services going during what is a huge crisis. Thank you for all that you are doing. And like I've said before in the last few weeks, I'm just putting out these episodes to give anyone who needs it a welcome distraction or another touch point with some of their favorite sports personalities. So speaking of which, my guest this week, Rachel Bonetta, you know her as the host of Lock It In, the FS1 sports gambling show. A lot of you know her for her coverage of soccer, both with Fox covering things like the World Cup or back when she was covering MLS. And and her OG fans know her as a really funny comedian and a really engaging creator who kind of came up the ranks on YouTube and other social channels, creating really awesome content. So Rachel is branching out yet again with a new podcast over on Crooked Media called Hall of Shame. In it, she and her co-host, Reshna Frukbaum, Each week, they break down a new sports scandal. And I'm talking about the weird, bizarre, insane sports controversies that you remember, like a woman getting off the subway and, air quotes, winning the Boston Marathon, or the scandal in Brazil with Ryan Lochte, where he was kind of mugged, but then maybe peeing on the side of a gas station, and no one but his mom could figure out what was going on for a little while, or the 2002 figure skating scoring debacle or 10 cent beer night (laughs) with the Indians and the riots and and problems that ensued. They're taking a really funny, irreverent look at these types of scandals. And I thought it'd be really fun to kind of break down their thought process, how they come up with their topics, um, the nuances of breaking down the X and O's of each, each scandal. I mean, some of these things really only became a phenomenon because, you know, Ryan Lochte decided to lie to his mom or somebody had one extra glass of Chardonnay in a hotel lobby. (laughs) Anyway, and then after the interview, Gareth Hughes, my longtime co-host, stranded out in Brooklyn, getting by, as most of you know, Gareth, uh, in treatment for cancer, juggling that, plus life in Brooklyn in the the COVID world. We took a few minutes to, with live sports kind of on pause for the duration here, or for the time being here, we took a moment to rank our top live sports moments we've seen of all time. And what was really kind of weird about it was that number one, most of mine were like super depressing (laughs) and some of mine had almost nothing to do with sports at all. In fact, one of them had to do with Christina Aguilera. So if you've been missing live sports, stick around for that conversation as we break down our all time sports ish moments. But right now let's get to Rachel. We're talking sports scandals. Enjoy. I'm excited to break down the podcast, but one thing I did learn about you uh, from the show is that it sounds like during quarantine you have 
jumped into The Sopranos. Are you still doing that? And if so, how far have you gotten? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so Sopranos has been on my list of things that I need to watch along with, like, The Wire for ever. Um, And now I'm just starting the last season. I started it this morning. And that's an issue because I'm still just watching episodes at every (laughs) time of the day. As soon as I wake up, I watch an episode. Before I go to bed, I try to get as many as I can in. It's just such a great show. I'm so, like... I'm I'm disappointed that I obviously have taken so long to watch it, but watching it as an adult and being able to take it all in is just such a great experience. And watching it all at once, phenomenal, so good. And you're young enough where you probably weren't really cognizant about the coverage that came out during the show's run, right? Are you coming into it that cold? Yeah, I mean, I I have no idea. My boyfriend, who's kind of pseudo, kind of watching it with me, he's a little bit older than me, and he knows at least what happens in the finale. Like, I guess the, don't say anything, by the way, I guess the finale (laughs) is like some big thing that happened or like the last season, something big happened that was just like so widespread and everyone knows about it, but I have no idea. Like I really, besides the general fact of knowing that Anthony Soprano is a mobster and goes and seeing goes and sees a therapist. That was all that I knew about the show, except for that. It was really good. I also heard you on the pod talking about watching a lot of HGTV uh, <laughs> when we were yes. when my wife and I were looking for a place, we sold our condo in the city. We were still looking for a place in the suburbs, and we had to crash with her parents and and our first daughter for like ten months. And HGTV oh to God. to someone who is like sleeping in my my in law's basement was like porn to me at a certain point. I was like, oh yeah, look at that, look at that outdoor like landscape job here. I am all look about at that, that quartz countertop. Oh baby, <laughs> yes. You know we're in a small apartment. We live in Venice, so we live in a small apartment, and um, we're just like dreaming of of owning a place. And so we're watching HGTV at all. And I was just joking actually that HGTV is almost like a fantasy of living our old lives, like going over to a friend's yeah. house, being in somebody else's home and just being able to hang out. Like that's kind of what, what's been drawing us to HGTV as well as just like some kind of normalcy. But yes, I've, I've been watching that also. <laughs> well, look, congrats on the launch of the podcast. Uh, it sounds like it's going really well, uh, you know, so far. I just wanted to kind of, as we dive into that, how did you and Retina kind of come around circling this topic area for your show? What, what, you know, drew you into the scandals of sports, you know, this overtly? Mm-hmm. I actually, you know, I was listening to a bunch of different podcasts. I was listening to the dollop. I was listening yeah. to my favorite murder. And that's when I came up with the idea of hall of shame is I, I was like, this doesn't exist in sports. And there are so many crazy sports stories, sports scandals that I would love to rehash because it's like same as Soprano. Some of this stuff happened before I was even born or when I was too young to even really recognize what was going on. And so I wrote up a pitch. My first, the first episode that I pitched actually was just like the life and times of Tiger Woods and like all the sex capades (laughs) that he went on. So who doesn't want to relive that? I didn't like get the nitty gritty details. So I wrote up a pitch, sent it all over the place. It landed that crooked. We went through so many different auditions. Like I want to say like 15 to 20 people came in and we did full <laughs> episodes with them. So it would be different if it was like 15 to 20 people coming in and just like reading a scene from a show. Like, no, we were doing 15 to 20 full episodes with this person to see if I had chemistry with them, if they had like sport knowledge, if they were funny. I really wanted a woman 
And so we went through so many people and we found Rechna and um, she was just so fun. She's so talented. She was a writer on Fresh Off the Boat, Parks and Rec, and we just clicked. We immediately had, we both love the Browns. Like we just immediately had that, um, those interests in common. And, and I was just like, this is the girl. And, and she has totally helped us take the podcast from that city pitch that I wrote about Tiger Woods into what it is now, which is so much different. And um, it's been a lot of fun. I had no idea you didn't know each other, which I th- I think speaks to your natural chemistry there. I did know you were both Browns kind of fans, you being more the adopted kind. I'm a Bengals fan, so if you want to shit yeah. on me now, feel free. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I feel like um, she's been a Browns fan. She was like raised in Cleveland, so I feel like she's kind of taken me under her wing. Like I obviously understand the pain that Browns fans have been through over the years, but she's like, no, 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 no. Let me walk you through every painful moment that I went through as a kid and that maybe you'll understand what it takes to be a Browns fan but um yeah we just like instantly hit it off I feel like it was the same as Crooked I kind of went into Crooked being like I don't think this podcast is going to fit here they're very like political and progressive and like I just don't know if that's what this podcast is or if it's going to like fit you know into their library and I went in and I I met with um it was awesome. A whole room full of women. There was not a single guy in there, which is, you know, guys are great and all, but I've been working with men my entire career because I work in sports. Obviously that's a male dominated industry. So to sit in a room with women and talk about this sports podcast, all of them were super funny and they had great ideas and, and it just clicked and we had a great conversation. And I remember I called my agent on the way home and I was just like, this is the one we don't need to look at anywhere else. Let's do crooked. If they're down with it, like let's move forward. I, I just had the best meeting of all the meetings that we had. And like the auditions, there was a lot of them. Um, and then <laughs> uh, it was the same with Reshna. She, you know, she kind of came in because somebody, she was a friend of somebody and, and they were like, yeah, like she's, she's a really good friend of mine. She's a big sports fan. This might not work out. Like she's a writer and she doesn't really do podcasts or anything. And I have try it. And I think because it was just like no pressure situation. And Reshna just came in and, and like rocked us all. We were like, oh, this chick is so rad. And she's also very different than I am. You know, she's a mom. She's a little bit older than I am. Uh, different like upbringing. She was raised in mm-hmm. Cleveland. I was born in Canada. And so I, I for some reason, it just really works. Uh, by the way, which of the Pod Save America guys gets picked last in gym class? Go. Uh, love it because I think he hates sports. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a fair. I think not that's based fair. on his athletic abilities, but he's just like, he's probably not even wanting to participate. <laughs> One of the things I like about the early tone you're setting in your show is that you're leaning into the more ridiculous sides of the scandals. And that feels like kind of a clear choice to me. What is your criteria for what makes a good scandal for this particular uh, series that you're doing as opposed to just like maybe Google. I mean, we all know the usual suspect stuff. It's interesting you mentioned Tiger, right. but I think where you're going is a little bit more eccentric and maybe unexpected. Is that is that part of your strategy? I think that what I'm looking for is that I want a story that when I get a, when I come in to record the podcast, I'm legitimately excited to talk about it because I'm like, oh shit, you guys, like you have no idea the juicy goss that I uncovered in this story. <laughs> it's like telling your friend a secret or telling your friend something crazy that your your other friend did. You know, I just like, what I love about this podcast is that I do get to go in and be excited and have fun. And like something that also that you can poke fun at because, you know, Russian and I are both comedians. We love to be funny about things. And it's a little bit hard when, you know, there, there are probably going to be episodes where things are a little bit darker, but that's basically what I'm looking for is something that like makes me excited and, and brings out like the true giddy, 
sports fan, but also like low key drama queen that lives inside of me. It's interesting to hear you ta- say we're both comedians. You also are at this point, like, you know, an Emmy winning uh, sports personality. Do you still uh, self identify <laughs> as comedian? You know what? I've, to be truly honest, I've never really thought of myself as a sports host. And I know that sounds so weird because that's really all that I've, the majority of the work that I've done, but I feel like I'm, I'm not, and who knows, people can think whatever they want to think about me, but I, what I feel is that I'm not traditional. I'm not the kind of person that like mm-hmm. comes in and is buttoned up. And I think that that's why I've gotten to where I am at this point is it because I am different. And, and I do try to be, <laughs> I'm going to say try to be funny because you just called me on saying that I'm a comedian, but um, you know what I mean? I think that that's what's gotten me to where I am is that I'm, I'm not a sports host, if, if that makes any sense to you. But, you know, I, I do improv and I write a lot and, and that's how I actually got started in the sports world was comedy sketch writing. I, right. Not a lot of people know that, but that's how I was discovered. Um, and so that's, that's what I truly feel. And I feel like a lot of people just like see you on TV and you're on a sports gambling show. And they're, they're like, okay, she's a sports host. But I feel like there's a lot going on behind closed doors that people don't know about. And that's what makes me identify as a comedian. Yeah. And, and like I said, I wasn't calling out that you're not, it's, I, I know you yeah. as your, your yeah. imprint across multiple platforms and YouTube, you know, I've seen like your comedy style videos. So I, I, yeah. I just think it's interesting to see as, as your fandom starts to see you through the prism of sports, how do you retain your own sense of self in terms of how you view yourself versus how you're sort of air quotes, like known as um, more public? Yeah, it's a good question. Cause you know, I, I actually struggle with that a lot because I feel like, you know, Social media is, I absolutely hate it, but it's such a big part and integral <laughs> part of, of what we do nowadays. It's how people know us. It's how we get jobs. It's, you know, just as important as, as what you're putting up on television is your social media game, right? And so I feel like I've acquired all of these followers and this following being XYZ when really I'm ABC, if that makes any no, sense. Totally. So I feel like there's, there's times where I want to post something that's like, I think this is hilarious. And this is something that I am proud of. And when I post it, and it doesn't have the same reaction, you know, it, it like hurts. Like, oh, these people don't get what I'm about, but it's really, there's two different people here. There's the mm-hmm. people that people perceive me to be on television and this like sports nerd. And that, that's fine. That exists too within myself. But also there's this like artistic person who makes music and makes comedy and loves to be weird and character and improv and, and all that stuff. So I, it's a weird balance. And it's something that I'm learning how to do every single day. Part of me, some days I'm just like, you know what, screw it. You're only going to post what you truly want to post. And other days, like, okay, we got to keep up with the algorithm, algorithms. We got to get more <laughs> likes today. Yeah, yeah, we're looking for the likes, people. So it, it sucks. I absolutely hate social media, but that's just the world that we live in. Well, look, you're on the one sports show that really doesn't talk about sports that much. So I, I say go for it. Give me more of the other <laughs> yeah. content. Let's talk about some right. specific episodes of the show and some of the points that kind of sprung out to me. I loved the episode on the 2002 figure skating judging scandal. Um, What I really liked was that you keyed on the fact that maybe the entire thing was just a product of someone having too much Chardonnay in a hotel lobby and just getting loose lipped (laughs) about cheating. How much, how much do you find joy in sort of breaking down because there's a couple, you also talked about this, the Lochte thing. Like, did he just lie to his mom to not look bad coming home in the morning? Like, are you surprised how many of some of these scandals kind of stem from, wow, this was this one super avoidable thing that happened and it mm-hmm. probably shouldn't have, except someone did something super dumb at the beginning and just, it got compounded from there. 
I will say, because I, I don't feel like there is a program, whether it's a television show or a, a podcast before we did, that really breaks down these things. So you're really only looking at the headlines. And I feel like one thing that's really interesting that Retro and I have found is like we start off by being like, okay, Ryan Lochte's a douche. But then we get into his story. <laughs> his is a bad example because we still kind of ended up being like, all right, this guy's a little bit of a loser. But the, the example that I always use is Rosie Ruiz, who was one of our first episodes. And she's the yep. woman that cheated, cheated in the New York City Marathon, the Boston Marathon. She rode a subway to the finish line. It's an incredible story. So you you read that headline, woman cheats in, in Boston Marathon. She rides the subway in New York City Marathon. You're like, oh, this, this woman sucks. Like she's a cheater. And then you read into her past and, and what her story really truly is. And she was, she had to flee Havana without her family. And she had to move in with her cousins and her aunts and her uncles. And she was always just trying to like prove herself. And she never really felt like she belonged. And then it was like this whole other story that no one knew about. And we were like, oh my God, we, were, we just were on a journey. Like, how did we get from here to there? And, and I keep on feeling like we're discovering that we just did an episode is actually about to come out about Ron Artest met a world peace. And, you know, he's known for being a little bit of an asshole on the court, but not a lot of people know that he learned how to cook crack when he was 13 because he was living in housing projects in New York city. And he saw somebody get stabbed and killed. And, you know, a lot of their past has to do with the present moment that we're oogling and ogling about. And so I feel like that's kind of what this podcast is is turned into at first it's funny and it's like oh my god these people are so dumb and crazy but then it's like oh shit well maybe we should rewind and, and actually think about this and break it down and, and break it down from a 2020 perspective coming from two females which probably didn't happen when this news broke right. in the first place so it's it, honestly it's like a ride every single episode yeah the rosy one was very good I, I liked that you got into the frustrations you felt with her both as like and again it was a kind of a complex situation that you don't think she maybe was trying to win the race and yet when the heat came on she kind of played I, I think the, the way you described it was kind of played like the oh here's a woman getting misbelieved and I think you kind of vented some frustration with that that like oh come on like you know we have it hard enough in sports right now and when someone comes in here and just doesn't cop to this, it just it makes it easier for the bad actors and the naysayers to uh, pin more doubt against our accomplishments overall, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that at the end of every episode, we kind of try and have a discussion, whether it's like, okay, so wait, let me break this down. This actually like happened, or you know, sometimes we come with questions so that you know, Rush has just finished me talking finished hearing me talk about Rosie Ruiz, and then I kind of ask her what her opinions on certain things are, and, and with Rosie Ruiz. I really just felt like, you know, every every article that I read, one of them was actually from uh, Woj, like the first Woj bomb was like, <laughs> you know, she crossed the finish line and she was sweaty and she was a little chubby and I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. And she was like fat, not a run, had, didn't have a runner's body and like all of this stuff. And so like, that's the kind of media that was coming out at that point. And so I feel right. like fast forward to 2020, there's so many other avenues to explore. And that's what Russia and I, have been hoping to do it. And specifically, a lot of the time it's like, okay, well, my, my certain vantage point is, is from a, being a woman in sports. That's part of my identity. And so that's how, that's the lens that I am looking through. And so when I see Rosie Ruiz, somebody who is representing women, basically like not far after the very first woman ran in Boston marathon, she's cheating and kind of making us all look like assholes. We were just like venting our frustration in that moment. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, it was a great episode. I, I, I would say Thanks. my favorite was your Lochte one. You had an amazing debate about whether he's hot. 
And to give the <laughs> listeners context, it was like he comes across as so dumb. And look, I, I have worked with Ryan. He, he, was, he was nice. But I, yeah, I mean, I get it. I get it. Every, everything you say has like uh, is absolutely true. And I think where you came down on was, look, I just couldn't, hot or not, if someone can't communicate to me <laughs> in a certain way, I'm out. Is that still how you feel? Because I feel like Retchen was trying Basically, to say. the overarching question was like, can you date a hot dumb dumb? And <laughs> I don't think I could. Retchen was all in. Yeah, Mind I know you, she like, was. You know, she's in a different part in her life, but I was just like, <laughs> no, I'm. I don't think that I could do that. Mind you, if I ran into Ryan Lochte and things were different, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but it was, uh, yeah, it was. A, it was a fun way to to start the conversation. Yeah, I mean, he's hot. I'll I'll give him credit where credits due. Good guy's a good looking dude. But um, <laughs> okay, so you did a great episode on Ten Cent Beer Night. I want to know what's the most obnoxious you've gotten at a live sports game. Oh no. Um, Oh boy. I went, I used to go to a lot of Jays games when I was younger and the thing about the Jays, they have the roof open and in the summer in Toronto, it's like so nice. So I would get a little belligerent at that game, but probably the most I got was watching the Raptors win the NBA finals. Mm. I was very drunk and crying and <laughs> it was a whole thing you know we had i've loved the raptors my whole life i was with one of my girlfriends who have also loved the raptors their whole lives and to be able to watch them win in person and be in uh oakland and that was the last game uh in that uh arena and it was just it was an emotional moment and i had too much beer, <laughs> so but it was that's probably yeah that's probably the most intense I've been. How long did it take you to get the maple syrup out of your hair when you and you were doing those bets during the finals? You know, surprisingly, pretty quickly. We actually have okay. showers on the lot because um, a lot of the guys we have a lot of athletes coming through and they go to the gym and they shower and then they go on TV and they're overachievers, whatever. Um, so I they gave me. They gave me a robe and and flip flops right after I was covered in maple syrup, and I just like walked down to the showers and just went straight into the shower with all of my clothes on and just basically like sat there on, in warm water until it like basically it wasn't plot twist it wasn't maple syrup it was actually corn syrup so oh. it disintegrated like pretty quickly okay and I was able to get it off so it really wasn't that bad that's good now how long before they make you do Deflate Gate? Um, I don't know, because I feel like there's so many different stories that are obviously well known, like people know what Tiger Woods did, but maybe there's enough time removed that we could dive back in like people want to taste. I mean, Tom Brady is going to be the talk of the town going to Tampa Bay next season. I, I I don't know. I you tell me. Is there is there a thirst for that on the streets? I, I, I mean, I can't, I can't tell. Is so, there a, I'm sure Patriots fans are just like so over it. But somebody like me, it's like you know, I kind of forget the nitty gritty details. Like I would relive that. I'd listen to that podcast. So oftentimes I'm weighing it that way. Instead, let me pitch you one angle. You can you can choose to ignore or use yeah. if you want. The big tipping point to that scandal to me was when he destroyed his phone that allegedly had the text yeah. messages on it. All he had to say, in my opinion, was like, look, my wife and I travel. She's one of the most gorgeous women in the world. I had sent her some tasteful nudes. I got rid of oh, my phone. Oh, genius. Right? 
Oh, that that is actually there very you go. smart. Boom. All right, Tom. Um, Tom, you have my number if you need my help next time. <laughs> what, what? Yeah, no, I would love to relive like literally. I mean, Tom and the Patriots are just embroiled in so many different scandals. Like we could just do one episode just based off of the Patriots, and it'd be like five hours long. Yeah, right. So to close, what what are your? Is there anything from the pod you want to tease? Any other plans you've got coming on that you want listeners that you're excited about? You want mm-hmm. listeners to know about. Right now, I feel like we're focusing on basketball. The next few episodes are all basketball themed. So we did, I don't know if you're familiar with Frozen Envelope. Oh, you yeah. Know that, yeah. Do you know man, that? Yeah. So we're doing, do we're doing Frozen that? Envelope. Do you believe Spoil- uh, no, no spoilers, 1, but did you? thousand percent. Yeah, you do? Yeah. After listening, after listening, that's Retch's episode. After listening to the podcast, I was like, oh my God, they absolutely did some shady stuff. <laughs> but, um, so Frozen Envelope is going to be fun. We have a two-part episode on Ron Artest and like all of the he he has so many scandals and so much drama in his life that we had to break it up into two episodes, which is crazy. Um, oh, one of my favorite episodes that we actually recorded early on, but it hasn't come out yet, is the United States of America's one of their biggest sting operations happened with the Washington Redskins. And they arrested over 200 people on the FBI most wanted list. It's an insane what? story. It's I've never heard about this. Absolutely insane. Just Google it. Okay. But we're we're doing a whole episode on this. It sounded it sounded like a movie that was like not true in any way, and our jaws were just on the floor. It was. It's just so wild. It's so fun. Final question: Why are there so many more U.S.-born scumbags in sports starting these scandals than uh, good old Canadian uh, athletes? I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> We're perfect. <laughs> we are perfect human beings. It's honestly insane how many stories about the Olympics we've come across. Yeah. Um. There's just like that's just like a cesspool of bad things. <laughs> So I'm sure, you know, with the lack of the Olympics this summer, I think we're going to end up doing like a whole month of Olympic stories, which is going to be fun. Well, I can't wait. It's, uh, honestly, congrats again. It's a great show, and we're wishing you nothing but the best. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me on. This has been fun. And we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media, they all do interesting things. And then we, the fans, tell them stopping interesting, get back to watching game film. That's ridiculous. Life is just work and the things that distract us from work. So we celebrate locker room distractions by telling you what's been distracting us. And once again, returning from our Brooklyn Bureau, hunkered down, it's seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer Gareth Hughes, my longtime co-host and friend. Gareth, I'm excited to get you back because we were talking over text. We want to... Oh, first things first. How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> we, we talked about that last week. Or the last time I was on. So yeah, it just... Uh, I'll come in with major updates. Okay, okay. Um, but we, uh, we were trading texts about there's no more live sports, clearly. I mean, I guess there's mm-hmm. UFC because apparently they're going to do whatever is needed to listen. I have to say like UFC WWE, the thing I I like, but I haven't seen much of on a meme or anything like that is from the Simpsons episode where sideshow Bob is trying to kill Bart with the atomic bomb. They have to stop television. And Krusty jumps. He's like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. 
I think the survivors would envy the dead. <laughs> and then he goes out to the Alkali Flats and is broadcasting like 21 Let's watts of get wackiness. Busy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is UFC and WWE at this point. They are Krusty the Clown in a desert bunker with like the 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 stingy and battery show. Like it is just like they are putting on a cardboard piece of sports and it is fascinating in some ways, but I, I <laughs> go for it guys. Yeah. You know? Do you man. So, do you stay safe? Exactly. Do you? But Here's we, Dwight D. Eisenhower. <laughs> you so. and I have been lucky as both fans and as professionals in the sports world to be at a lot of interesting live sports. So we just thought it'd be fun to kind of go down our personal list of top five sports moments you've seen in person. And I want to clarify okay. what we mean by this. Um, Oh, we jump in. Go ahead. Well, no, because I, I wanted to add, I wanted to clarify. Like, if I was at the event, but I was in a live broadcast truck because we were broadcasting. That's it, fine. Does that count? Okay. Yeah, I think it depends on the way you frame it up. Um, mm-hmm. But I think being there is is fine because um, we were talking about like a lot of times people will say, uh, "What I didn't want to say is like, hey, I was at this Super Bowl. Like, I don't care. I, like, I'm talking like moments." So it could right. be part of the game action or a couple of mine are like weird things that happened that had mm-hmm. unexplainable reactions from the audience that I found more f- memorable than like anything I saw in the field that day or whatever. It's just like yeah. being in the stadium, in the venue, in the arena. What were your top five live mo- sporting moments of all time? So uh, you want to go first? I'll go first. Here, I'll go first. How about that? I'll set the yeah, time. or do you want to trade back and forth? Are we yeah, no, that's what I mean. We'll go, we'll go five. Okay. We'll go five. Five. Real quick, some honorable mentions for me. And my list was: I haven't been to as nearly as many high-profile things as you. Just working for CBS and the work you've done for the mm-hmm. Patriots and that kind of stuff. I what did not make my roster here, man? Our Final Four that you and I went to together, oh six. The the worst Final Four ever played, arguably. That's the thing. Is like nothing in those. I mean, George Mason played. It was kind of interesting. I thought about like that kid from Florida hitting those threes, but that was mostly like momentum mm-hmm. killers. Nothing like crazy. Right. And then the second game we saw was such a turd. The most memorable moment that I almost put in was when you and I were like, "These bars in India are too crowded. Let's just go drink in the stadium." And then the the slow realization as we walked around that. They don't sell alcohol in here. We're at the final four six hours early and we can't drink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also remember a vivid moment of you turning to me as we were walking around the concourse and just being like, do you imagine being a Florida fan? <laughs> and then like, with, like then they, they started a mini dynasty. <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, it did seem kind of, they were like one of those like football schools that was a cheese ball, you know, I mean, LSU was there too. It's kind of felt, kind of felt like the same thing. Like, and eh, what are these teams doing here? It's going to be UCLA. Right. And no, it was right. not. I mean, look like I, uh, similarly, I was at the 2011 uh, national championship game between Butler and UConn, which, you know, Kemba Walker will always be able to say he has a national championship. Jim Calhoun got another one. But that was one of the worst basketball games I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. So just the the magnitude of the event does not determine the quality of the game. Also did not make my list either uh, Kentucky Derby since I never saw a horse in person. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, number five for me, 2013 NBA playoffs. It's Bulls versus Nets. 
Uh, my friend, Other Brad, says, hey, man, late. this dude can't go to the game today. You want to go to the playoffs? I, my daughter was legitimately like three days away from being born. But my wife mm-hmm. said, go ahead. This is the last thing you're doing for a while. We go <laughs> there. Bulls are down. Ultimately, this game is remembered as a, a triple overtime kind of classic early round NBA playoff game. But what I will always remember it as was the Nate Robinson game. Because my moment was when he had 12 straight, I think it was like 10 or 12 unanswered points in the final minutes of the fourth quarter to lead this like furious comeback to send it to overtime. And then after that, like two more overtimes. And just having that feeling of excitement of, dude, Nate Robinson is still around and is on this team. I totally didn't realize that. Oh, he dropped 34 points, including like a LeBron run at the end of regulation. <laughs> and then I saw one of the most memorable, you know, Chicago basketball moments of the post-Jordan era. So I thought that was pretty great. That's fantastic. Those, those are like, I would love to see like a triple overtime game or something like that. Like, or a, I would love to be in an NFL game that goes into a second overtime. You know? Yeah. Oh so. no. I uh, it, after a while, I I do remember after the second overtime, people kind of look at each other like we're watching something that you're not supposed to watch. Mm-hmm. Like this is weird now, and the right. mood is gets more surreal. Everyone kind of realizes it's surreal, and it's like you stop really thinking, "Oh my god, we have to win this game," and you more think, "I can't believe I'm at this game." Right. 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 Like at a certain point, too, just the quality of play fall off too much because like they're just tired or something like that like i just remember reading about some of those like mega overtime hockey games in the playoffs and there was one guy i remembered interviewed once i think it was one of those like five overtime games he was like yeah in between the third and fourth overtime i ate a pizza (laughs) i was just gonna say that an entire pizza (laughs) yeah i mean i remember the third overtime like the bulls just kind of like pulled away it's hard to tell i mean it's an nba game like you either hit your shots or you don't after a certain point you're just watching the score and you're Mm -hmm. just saying i don't remember any quarter being or any any overtime being like two to two to two you know it felt like a normal like a normal thing all right you're you're number five gareth number five i'm just gonna go this is a regular season game but it kind of sums up everything that would come after that was one of the most informative experiences for me professionally and in all of sports was working for the 2007 Patriots, the team that went 18 and one. And I have very funny, quirky, particular memories of that Super Bowl, Super Bowl 42, which obviously they lost, but I'm going to go with my one great memory from earlier in that season, which is random, but it was, it was being at the game and watching from the stands, I wasn't actually working at that point. Uh, like on the, I had been working on the game day crew, but that year I had started producing a show for the Patriots. So on game day, I just watched the game and take notes and things like that. So I was watching the game from the press box. And I, I guess it might've been like week four or something like that. And it was, it was a fall, like early, like daytime uh, home game against the Bills. And Tom Brady just unloaded down the sideline this bomb to randy moss and randy moss just like jumped over a guy in a way i had never seen before coming right at me and made a catch that is still the greatest thing i have ever witnessed on a football field like this one play 
And I just remember like turning to the guy next to me who was like the reporter on my show and just being like, holy shit, I have never seen anything like that. And to this day, I have like, I've never been that close or just that. Just, I've never seen anything that just changed my view of what was possible on a football field (laughs) (laughs) in a way like that. And so watching the 2007 Tom Brady, Randy Moss season is one of the like most fun things that I've ever gotten to do. I wish they had won that Super Bowl just because it would be so much easier to then make the argument that they're the best football team I've ever seen, which is probably the one I'll make for the rest of my life because they're still the best football team I've ever seen. But um, that particular play on that early season game was just one of the greatest things I've ever seen, like with my own eyes. And so that would be my number five. Yeah, that's a good one. It's funny. I remember us talking that season all season long and just you being like, this is so surreal, you know, like, just mm-hmm. the, are they actually going to go undefeated? It had a, it had a little bit of that vibe, like uh, when the year that um, Virginia lost to the 16 seed. Where everyone kept being yeah, like, yeah. this isn't really happening, right? And then you're like, oh my God, this might happen. Well, uh, I, I do feel like them lose. There's some sort of like karmic payback with all the. That season started with Spygate. I mean, that season had everything. And so I almost feel like them going 18 and 1, we didn't know it at the time, was probably how it was supposed to end or something like that. But you know what? Good for them for going for it anyway. They would go that hard for it. In, in the later years of their dynasty, now that Tom Brady's left, it's over and it's moot. But like, I don't know. There was something about that team and just the total push all the chips into the table and go for it. That um, it was something to behold. And right. uh, yeah, so that was that was my way into it. Was that one catch right in front of me early on that just kind of changed my view of what was possible in football. So okay, so my number yeah. four is a game I believe you and I were at together with Steve Shaber. It was Mm -hmm. Bengals-Saints, 2002, December 23rd or 22nd, in Cincinnati. Do you remember the moment I'm going to bring up? I do not. Okay. The Bengals that year, I believe, at that time, were like one and... (laughs) I don't know. It it was the second-to-last game. We had one win, so we must have been... We were one and 13. Mm-hmm. And we had not been to the playoffs in a decade and a half. And we were the laughing stock right. of sports. This guy mm-hmm. named Nick Luchet scores what should be the tying touchdown late in the game. He does mm-hmm. the icky shuffle. Crowd's kind of half half full stadium going nuts. Yeah. They trot the kicker on, and the kicker doinked the extra point, and the entire stadium just laughed. And I've. Oh. I've tried to talk about this with like Bears fans mm-hmm. and other fans of like Packers fans, and they're like, "I would never be laughing at that. I'd be furious." And I'm like, mm-hmm. "That was the that was the most out of hope I've ever seen a fan base be." <laughs> they're just laughing at that point. Yeah, and like, yeah. It, it, I I don't do you remember do you remember that moment happening at all? I don't. I don't. It's, it was just surreal. It was just like looking around, everyone being like, ah, what are you going to do? And it's like, we've been sitting in the cold watching a one-win team in the, like two days before Christmas, and no mm-hmm. one is just like thrown off by this. Anyway, it was insane. I, I remember driving back to Peoria like right after that. Like I left the stadium and like drove home because I had to work um, mm-hmm. and just listening to the radio and being like, 
the Bengals are never going to be good. And <laughs> and here we are, 16, uh, 18 years later, and they still have not won a playoff game. So there you go. Yeah, right. yeah, you're, that's you're number four, you my friend. I'm putting this in there. This would have been this is one that I was in a truck for, um, and it's going to go number four for other people. It might have been higher, but for me, like golf isn't my favorite sport, so that's why it's going to go number four. But this was an incredible moment, and this was um, I worked the Masters twice. Uh, I did something called the Masters movie, which is like you're in the broadcast truck, and they they make like. You know, it's like the DVD extras package afterward. Like, your team just won the World Series. Like, buy the DVD. And so they, there's something called the Masters movie, and they make the movie every year of the Masters. And this was... I happened to be working at the first year that Phil Mickelson won his first Masters. And when he... I think it went into extra holes or something like that, or that might have been Bubba. I might have been mixing up, but it's just... When he long and short of it to win, he had gotten in trouble on some hole near the end and he had to chip out from the woods and he was 200 yards from the green and he hit this shot that then landed on the green. And when it landed, I have never heard. I've been in a lot of broadcast trucks for a lot of things. I was on headset with the producer of the Super Bowl when the lights went out in New Orleans. And that's not going to make this list. I mean, I've been in trucks for some wild moments. I have never been in a truck that reacted like that. Hit that shot and it landed on the green, giving him a chance to like clearly giving him the chance to run away with the masters after that. That was a moment unlike anything I've ever felt. Everybody jumped up. Everyone was screaming into their headsets. It was and I mean, these people too, like you have to appreciate that a lot of these people who work on live events like this are grizzled veterans. And like, it takes a lot to get them to jump out of their seats. And so Bill Nicholson hitting a chip out of the woods to get everyone to jump up out of their seats to then go on to win his first Masters was one of the greatest moments I've ever had in a professional capacity in a truck. And so that one is my number four. Were you like, uh, no cheering in the truck, please? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, but it was one of those moments where everybody, like, it was just a total holy shit moment. It also, like, as much as I'm not a golf guy, I actually love working on the occasional golf project because you, you realize, you know, like, everybody who plays golf, like, you're all playing ostensibly the same sport. Like, this is true of all of these things. Like, shooting baskets you're playing the same sport as lebron but like watching professional golfers hit golf balls is insane like it's an insane thing and it's also that clearly phil was in trouble on this like they all hit bad shots but they have an arsenal of shots they can recover like that's one thing they have that the average person doesn't but also like when you watch them practice you'll see how they develop the shots to get out of the woods to win the masters because like, they'll be sitting there with their coach and the guy will be like, okay, why don't we try one where you hit it two feet to the left of that last one. And then they will hit it two feet to the left. Or if they hit it four feet to the left, they're like, eh, kind of missed it. (laughs) You know, like, and, and, and so just like watching professional golfers up close hone their game or work on their game and then execute it 
is an otherworldly experience that is just one of the most impressive things I've seen in sports. Whether I like the sport or not doesn't matter. Right. So that's my number four. All right, my number three, game one of the 2008 NLDS between the Cubs and the Dodgers. A client I was on the phone with was like, I have an extra ticket. You want to come with me? I'm like, okay, great. Um, that was my favorite Cubs team ever. It's still my favorite Cubs team ever. I know it's an insane thing to say since they won the World Series. Eight, Dude, I eight get years it. Like, the, I love that. I love that you can. I like the 2003 Red Sox more than the 2004 Red Sox because I watched every one of their games. So I get it. I totally get it. Yeah, and I'm sure one of those Red Sox teams is going to be on your list by the end of this. Um, the it's hard to explain how much we watched that Cubs. Uh, that was like the last year that I lived um, uh, without my, you know, my now wife, like I was living with a roommate. I just moved to Chicago the year before my dad died that summer. We like just watched a lot of like just Cubs games. Like when we were around, we'd go to the stadium a lot. I just felt a connection to that team. I'm sitting there. I'm so excited. Mark DeRosa homers. We're up to nothing. Gareth. And then the fucking doors came off. <laughs> and when James Loney hit this grand slam, I remember thinking, oh man, I've never seen the air come out of a stadium like this. And what, and you know this having been to like some of those Red Sox games pre their first World Series win. Mm-hmm. Watching how quickly a stadium went, even more than like the elation of the DeRosa home run, it was watching how quickly the stadium went from total excitement to total dread. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the game, you just realize, oh man, this is like a corporate crowd. It's like every all the real fans here are just like, it's already over. We don't have it. We're going to blow this. It just, it was like the hangover from those 07, 08 were like the hangover from the Bartman years, which is totally unfair mm-hmm. to, for Steve Bartman. But it, it and later on my list, I have an even worse moment for me. Most of mine are like negative moments now that I look at I like them. I think you went that direction, though, dude. It's kind of fun. But uh, I, I, I choose it because I've never felt... Like, I think these historic droughts in certain sports that we grew up with, like Cubs and Red Sox and stuff, have kind of dissipated. But it's mm-hmm. fun to kind of look back and be like, oh, yeah, I remember how, you know, you can be in a stadium and, like, something goes wrong and everybody just loses their rational sense and they're like, we can't win. Like it were cursed. Right. Right. No, no, the, the, you said it, the, the sense of pervasive dread that can seep through a stadium. It's a fascinating thing. It's, it's scary and it's weird, but right. it's very real. Yeah. All right. You're number three. Um, you know, I'm so tempted just to follow up with like my equivalent of that. And it's, there's, it's so whatever i almost want to do the last three like in no particular order but i'm gonna do it this way um similar it was 2004 i'm sitting at work i was working on some like this music festival and the head sales guy walks in and he's just like i've got two tickets to the red sox angels alds game three do you want them it's starting right now like late afternoon uh i can't use them they're yours. I just said, yes. I called Dan Pribble and I called you guys during this game. I remember you, I remember talking to you in the stadium. Yeah. And so Dan left his job at MIT. I left my job in the, in South Boston. We met at the stadium. You know, this was round one 
of 2004 around they swept so you were thinking the red sox were just going to cruise little did we know what was ahead and as dan put it years later he was like the 2004 the 2003 2004 yankees red sox just a whole calamitous thing was a pretty singular experience but as he put it 2004 itself was living through something incredibly once in a lifetime but we couldn't see that coming from this point because the red sox began by sweeping the angels in three games and we saw game three which went to overtime and in the preview of coming attractions ended with david ortiz hitting a walk-off home run in overtime and similar to randy moss earlier yeah sorry in extra innings but like similar to what i was saying with randy moss earlier like david ortiz w- will always end up being my favorite baseball player just because of his flair for the dramatic and what he would do in a big situation. And you can argue if the clutch gene exists or it doesn't, but I got to see him hit a series winning walk off home run. And that's good enough for me. I saw it with my own eyes. He hit that ball out. Of, like over, he hit that ball out. We all went bananas. Everybody was stuck in the stadium for so long afterward, just celebrating and celebrating and celebrating. And then little did we know what was going to come up next with the Yankees and whatnot. But it was just, it was the same thing as you, only a happy ending where, you know, one minute you're not going to a game and the next minute you're sitting there. And then the next thing you know, you see history. So that was, that's my number three. All right. My number two, Super Bowl 45, I believe it's 45, uh, XLV. Um, Oh yeah, it just rolls right off the tongue. Um, they need to just make them numerals, or forget the Roman numerals at this point. I know they never will, but like it's just enough is enough. It's in Dallas, the only Super Bowl game I ever went to, and this is a moment that will always stick with me that has nothing to do with the game. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Extina, Extina, messing up the national anthem <laughs> was the most insane thing and it was the first live Twitter moment I ever experienced. So it's like January hmm. of 11 or February of 11, whatever it was. I'm sitting there with our former co-host Adam Willard and um, I, we're watching the game or we're watching like the like the prelude to the game and stuff and they announce Christina's going to do the national anthem. And I'm like, okay, cool. And like every other rational person, you just assume it's going to be pre-taped. You know, that's what they all mm-hmm. do. Even Whitney Houston was pre-taped. She starts singing, and then all of a sudden, it wasn't like she forgot the words and like Mo Cheeks put an arm around her or something. It wasn't like that. Everyone just looked at each other and they go, "Is she fucked that up, bro?" <laughs> like, what did she mess up? Like, I have no. She you know, so sang, I have no memory of this because honestly, that was the first. That was the day we found out we were expecting our first kid, and so like my wife and I were kind of in a daze and skipped the first three quarters of that Super Bowl just kind of walking around New York, went to dinner, talked a lot. And so then we just kind of caught it at the end. So what happened? Okay. So she, she starts singing and I'm pretty sure like the, the, the lyrics are like, Oh, say, can't you see by the dawn's early light? What's so proudly weak hail at the twilight's last gleaming. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure she did the first two lines, right. And then she jumped to, or the ramparts we watched we're so gallantly gleaming or whatever that was. So then 
no one really knew that was off until the next verse when she has to say those words and then it becomes clear she sang this already, right? Mm-hmm. And everyone just, I, it was like this. It was like an instant head turn, like like the, the entire stadium could smell a fart at the same time. Like everyone just kind of like <laughs> looking, looking to the person next to them being like, is this right? And then I went right to Twitter and Twitter's just like, dude, she fucked up the national anthem. And I, and I say this cause I was like, Whoa, that is crazy. And I will give her credit. She recovered really nicely. And I like, hmm. I think she, the, the last note is kind of rough, but like she just gets through it and she's doing, uh, she's doing pretty good. And so I give her credit because she actually sang it live because you think about like, whether it's Fergie, uh, you know, butchering it or whatever. Like if you just, if you sing it live, I got so much more respect than like the, the year that the Broncos and Packers played and like Jewel was lip syncing and like came mm. in late and it's like, Oh, okay. You're lip syncing. Like that to me, I have way less respect for than just forgetting the words. We all do, dude. I, I I'm probably saying right. the wrong words just talking about it. Yeah. All right. So we'll do these last couple and like, I got like four minutes. Of, is that okay? Yeah, it's fine. All right. You're number two, Gareth. All right, I was going to put in our great, famous tell one to high school thing, but whatever. That was something that we saw. Tell one to be Princeton. We'll t- we've talked about it before. That was going to be my number two. I'm blowing that off. We got. I'm going double NCA to finish. And my number two was being in the truck for my first Final Four I ever worked. My first national championship game I ever worked. The F- Butler Duke, Gordon Hayward shot. But my mom's had a butler for 15 years. They were in Indy. If he makes that, that is the greatest shot in sports history, in U.S. sports history. I mean, that thing is legendary. But even just getting that close in that situation, it's still the second greatest thing I've ever seen in person. It was just to be a part of that and be that close to it was so crazy. But God, I wish it had gone in, man. Oh, I wish it had gone in. It's the greatest it's the greatest what if in I think in like modern American sports in terms of just like one couple inches Oof. that like cuz like you really look back and you and you you would have to say that that Butler team would probably be going down as like the greatest NCAA run the great like every list of like underdogs to to win it giant killers David versus Goliath they would be on top of it all it, it would, honestly to me and it's really hard to say this. Like, I think you're talking about people's like hot takes, making the argument that they're the better team than like the USA, the hockey team that beat the Russians in '80. You know, yeah, like and when beating Duke, right? It's and doing Duke, it in it's Indianapolis. Like, yeah, you know, like yeah. So, oh man. All right. Well, our number ones. Right. I had to do it. My my list is so depressing. <laughs> I didn't have any. Uh, the only I like that you went depressing. Only like Nate to, Robinson I, I, <laughs> was yeah. like a positive moment for me. I was at the Bengals playoff collapse against the Steelers in 2015, yeah. January of 2016. I drove down there with my sister and my cousin, who's a Pittsburgh fan. We braved the rain. We had our backup quarterback. That Bengals team. That's my favorite Bengals team ever. Um, well, 05 Even or more 15. than the Carson? Yeah. Yeah, yeah 05 yeah. was probably there, but they were also very frustrating. Um, 15 was like, we started 8-0, and oh, man. We were like, 
I mean, we really were one bad stretch against Denver from having a bye uh, with AJ McCarron in the in the playoffs that year. Like, like we should have mm-hmm. been in round two. We just got, um, you know, beat up against Denver right before the end of the season. You know, we have a backup quarterback. My expectations are low. They lead this heroic comeback. And then it's all a series of moments. It's the A.J. Green touchdown to give us the, the you know, the, the lead. It's the fumble. Uh, or no, it's the interception by Vontez Burfecht. It's the uh, fumble right, right back the next play. And then it's the, you know, the fourth down we don't get. And then the Vontez cheap shot on Antonio Brown. Right. And then the the fight that leads to all of a sudden I'm looking up and I'm like, Hey, I thought the Steelers were like at midfield and now they're kicking from like the three yard line. <laughs> like, what is right, happening? Right, right. And then I can remember thinking, well, you know what? I actually got to f- experience after the interception, I experienced, oh my God, I'm at the first playoff win in a generation for the Bengals. And then I got to experience, oh no, I'm at the worst playoff <laughs> loss in the, in the history. It was like. It was so much cooler to win it and then lose it than to just sort of like have a lead and blow it. Does that make right. sense? I yeah, yeah. To- it's, it's, I mean, it was an epic meltdown, dude. I mean, if you're going to have a meltdown, you might as well have that one. And it happened in all, in so many different ways, you know? And then because, so. because my cousin was a Steelers fan, we had made a bet that the loser had to walk out in the winner's jersey. So I had to cover up my Jeff Shaken Blake jersey with. Uh, his Roethlisberger to walk out of the stadium, and I was just like, this the, "The Roethlisberger part of that really hurts, dude. Like, that's Our, a gross jersey." That whole game was the weirdest, the weirdest game I've ever been to. Like the mood, people throwing shit at Big Ben when he was getting carted off. Like it was a, it was a vicious mood for that entire stretch. It was like the, that was like the last glimmer of that five straight playoff years, um, you know, run. Anyway, that's my mm-hmm. one. Tell me yours. It's going to be much, hopefully, much more hopeful. No, I mean it was. It's Villanova, UNC, 2016. North Carolina hits the shot. Everybody, I'm, I was watching it from my work was done at the national championship game in Houston. I'm sitting there watching it from the floor, like behind the student section with some of my colleagues, just waiting for the thing to finish. North Carolina hits the shot, and we're all like, whoa, that was crazy. Chris Jenkins comes down, as Jay Wright so eloquently put it, bang, drills it. We all go nuts. We all go up on, we all, we like, we were record, we were doing a dock and so, like a road to the final four kind of dock. So we all ran up on the court to like shoot the aftermath of it. And you can imagine the aftermath of that one was pretty good. And so, you know, thrill of victory, agony of defeat. And this is the reason why this is my number one moment. I look over and Bill Raftery catches my eye and he just gives me a wink and a smile and finger guns. <laughs> <laughs> I'm standing there on the court. Chris Jenkins just having hit the most, you know, like the coolest buzzer beater in NCAA history. And I get a smile and a wink and finger guns from Bill Raftery at the end of the game. And that's my number one for obvious reasons. So, Dude, that's amazing. That's when you come back to him and you go, throw it down, big fella, or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? All right, so well, anyway, this was a lot of fun, yeah. man. This was a good distraction for, for not having live sports. I'm a little sad that Princeton's... Uh, who are the people involved in the Princeton Talawanda uh, thing? Wince Morris? I mean, that, Wince Morris, Josh Durbin. You know, like, uh, I read a lot about that game a couple of years ago, man. You could go deep. Like, that's the... 
oral history doc you and I should get started on in the next week or so during quarantine. There you go. So well, I'm, I'm let's down. Get on it. I'm down. So. We'll do the whole thing on Zoom. You'll yeah. love it. Uh, you'll, <laughs> the quality will be great. You'll all love it. All right, that is our show for this week. Shout out to Rachel Bonetta for joining us. Go check out Hall of Shame on Crooked Media. Very fun listen. Uh, right, I'm not. I think Lock It In is on a little bit of a hiatus for the short term, but I'm um, hoping that they get back into action and hoping that we get back to sports uh, before too long. Check her out on on Twitter. She's very funny and, and appreciate her coming on with everything that's going on out in the world. And uh, Gareth, hopefully, we'll have you back on soon. And, uh, and, and, you know, stay connected here as things are kind of crazier and more bonkers than ever. But in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers. Stay booty. Stay booty.